New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Many have abandoned the dogma that surrounds our religious institutions and church attendance continues to fall. Yet the cries from our soul do not allow us to fully abandon religion altogether. Even as we leave the church of our youth, our soul insists that we seek out a sense of the sacred. Is it possible to reimagine a religion of our own? What serves as our spiritual compass? How can we access the wealth of traditional spiritual wisdom without falling into its dogma? The answers to these and many other questions will serve as a focus today with our guest, Dr. Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore was a monk for 12 years, a musician, a university professor, and a psychotherapist. And today he lectures widely on holistic medicine, spirituality, psychotherapy, and the arts. He has a PhD in religion from Syracuse University and has written more than 15 books, including Care of the Soul, Dark Nights of the Soul, and A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. Join us for the next hour as we explore what it takes to experience a life that feeds our soul with our guest, Dr. Thomas Moore. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Thomas, welcome. Very happy to be with you, Justine. It's so good to have you here. Let's let's talk a little bit about your background first off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you joined a religious order very early on, as early as thirteen years old. Yes. Say something about that. Well, I, I grew up in a very devout uh, Catholic Irish Catholic family, and went to a Catholic school, and uh, did well in school. and And so, I think when I was probably about five, the the nuns pointed me out and figured that I'd be a good candidate to become a priest. And and I felt that I, I wasn't pushed at all, and certainly my parents didn't push me. But when I was 13, I was inspired to, to go in that direction. And so I had to leave home, and uh, I was living in Detroit, and I went to Chicago, and I joined the Servite Order, which is a sort of a quasi-monastic order. It's not fully monastic because they don't stay in the monastery all the time. But it generally, the lifestyle is, is the life of a monk. And I lived that through high school years and then through my college years and into theology. And I, I was uh, 
And then uh, two of those years were studying philosophy in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. And then um, when I was about 26, I woke up one morning and I had the same kind of inspiration I had that got me into it that got me out of it. I just woke up and felt it was time to move on. And I had no good reason, but I just felt it was the thing to do. Now, you were right on the precipice of being ordained. I was about uh, just a couple of months shy of that, yes. And uh, where did that come from, an intuition? What, what, what can you say about that? Well, I guess it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, for one thing, this was the uh, 1960s, the late 60s, and the world was in a, a state of change then. A lot of things were changing, and it was an exciting time, really. And uh, so that was part of it. And uh, the, the, the life of the, uh, of the monk was changing quite a bit. And so, you know, I think that being swept up in that change and looking at a big world and wanting to really participate in it may have had something to do with it. But I didn't feel that that was the reason. I I felt that, and sometimes I think that I was educated out of where I was because I received a very good education there. And uh, I was reading, at that time, I was reading Teilhard de Chardin, who was writing very uh, inspiring books about the sacredness of nature, essentially, and evolution. And, uh, and I was reading Thomas Merton, and I was reading Paul Tillich, and I met Paul Tillich at that time. And so they had a big impact on me. And, and describe Paul Tillich a, a bit for our listeners. Paul Tillich was a Lutheran theologian who was teaching at that time at the University of Chicago. And his work was, it's hard to describe, he was finding language for Christianity, for Christian thinking, that was fresh and new. For example, instead of using the word God, he would talk about ultimate concern. He said that God is your ultimate concern. Well, that really opened up a lot of things for me. And he also talked about something that's affected me right up to the writing of this last book. He wrote about the sacredness and the religious nature of cultural things, of culture. So it was an easy move for me to go from from reading Tillich to understanding that I could find a lot of my religious questions answered in secular literature and in philosophy and psychology. And that's one of the things that you emphasize is that religion is not separate from the secular. So say something about that. This is an idea that's been with me. I can't remember how long. It's just baked into me somehow that I don't like to separate the sacred from the secular. I'd like to see that... uh, uh, you know, I think most people understand that nature, the natural world, is sacred, that you encounter transcendence when you go out into the natural world, and that you feel the, the infinite, uh, you feel the source of it all. You, you, it's a religious experience. That's pretty clear. But I also feel that going to a play or listening to music is, is the same. So uh, I'm interested in seeing how a person who is trying to be religious might learn to listen to all different sorts of music as part of their religious practice. That's an essential part of their practice. And when you go back into the history of religions, you see that this has been done anyway. I mean, how many people, in, I mean, in India, for example, my daughter is studying Indian music right now, and I, I, know, I know firsthand through her how, um, 
how important music is to the religious experience. And that, that doesn't mean making it something that you tag on an accessory to the experience, but that by going deep into the music itself, you, you encounter you know, the sacred, the holy, uh, the numinous. When you talk about a religion of one's own and making up a religion of one's own, you're not necessarily talking about us making up some sort of concoction and and pulling from this or pulling from that. What do you mean? No, I don't mean a concoction, no. (laughs) It could sound that way, but I don't mean that. No, what I mean is that that I think that for us uh, now at this time it's it's this is the time to stop looking for an answer outside yourself, looking for an organization that will that will answer your needs completely or or answer them through your joining them and subscribing to their beliefs and their practices and their way of looking at the world. I think that time is over. I think we're now we are entering a period where, especially, especially through technology, we are uh, people who have to put a lot of information together for ourselves and make our own decisions about what to believe and what, how to think and how to live. We have to do that ourselves more. I think it's a good thing. It's also a responsibility and it's more difficult. It is more difficult. Because it's much more easy for someone to give us the dogma and say, this is the way it is, the truth and the light, and that's an easy path. So what you're talking about is difficult because you're talking about really going in and questioning and even developing our own personal philosophy. Yes, exactly. How 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 can we do that? Well, I I, I what's the alternative? I mean, the alternative is to is to assume that some someone else has a better answer than you do or that it's okay to to have a sort of off the rack solution to your life that you can just go and find something that's ready made. I don't think you can do that because we are all so individual, each one of us. And I, I'm, I'm particularly aware of this because I do a lot of uh, deep psychotherapy. I mean, really go deep into people's lives when I do the therapy with them. And it's so clear to me that what is necessary for one person has no relationship to another person. And there's no way you find two people anywhere who are totally alike. They're not. We are very different. And so I think when it comes to religion, which is really being in touch with that deepest stratum of your existence, that um, that that religion then has got to be unique and something for you. That doesn't mean that it's that's self-absorbed and it's egotistical or anything like that, or that it's solitary. You can do this in community. I think community actually increases when you do it. But you still, it has to be rooted in your individual unique experience, or it's not going to be enough for you. You're going to feel something lacking all the time. Well, that's a provocative statement when you say that community increases, because one would think if you're making a religion of your own or making something up or going inside into that deep listening, it's very isolating, but you're saying that it can actually increase yes. your fellowship. Yes. Okay, well, consider that you have a church building somewhere or a synagogue or whatever, a mosque, and people flood into it in the hundreds, and they're in this building, and they're doing their prayers together and everything. Now, they call that a community, 
but th- really it's a group it's of bodies. You know, it's, it's people in, in the same building. That's what it is. It's people in the same building, maybe using the same words. But generally speaking, they're not, they're not really individuals there. They are people who have, in a sense, have left their individuality outside the door. And they're going in there and saying, oh, we all believe together now. I don't think that's real community. It seems to me to have a real community, you have to be a real individual participating with other people. And when you do it that way, you have a more intense sense of community. And it's not so literal. It's not about bodies being in the same place. It's about people discovering each other at a deep level, having something in common, but also having differences and wanting to be together because of their differences as much as what they have in common. What about um, a fellowship of ritual? What can you say about that? Uh, Well, uh, I have to think about that. Uh, Other people apparently are more interested in that than I am. Uh, well, I know that you mention in your book something about the, that you got together with your neighbors and you yes, made up a mass I did, together. Yes, I did, yes. And I, I did. That was a few years ago. We gathered friends and neighbors, mainly neighbors, together. We had children. We had our cats and dogs and and uh, friends. And we, get, we gathered together. And I led the thing. And I based it on what they call the Didache, which is a, a document from early Christianity about ritual, how to, how to do ritual. And um, I wasn't, I wasn't pretending that I was creating any kind of official Christian worship. I wasn't doing that. I'm not in that position to do it. But I learned about. I, I know enough about it, so I gathered people together. And I'm telling you, that was community. That was community. I'm here with Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of A Religion of One's Own: A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality. And if you'd like to know more about his work and his talks, you can go to the website careofthesoul.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Thomas, you mentioned earlier about music and as part of that whole spiritual practice and art is a very important part of the mystical experience in your opinion i believe mm-hmm. and why what is art what how does it move us 
Well, this is this is a this is a really a deep question because it seems to me that uh, we as people have this incredibly deep part of ourself. I mean, Jung called it the unconscious. That's uh, not maybe the best word for it. I may call it just your deep imagination, your heart, the place where your feelings reside. You might just call it your soul if you want. That's why I use the word soul a lot. And what's interesting about the soul as compared to the mind is that the soul works with images and story. It might be visual images. It might be uh, the images from just telling a story. It might be images in dance or architecture or whatever. So to the deep soul, to that deep part of us, images convey something that words and ideas can't, unless the words are poetic too and imagistic. So dreams, for example, are a very important part to me of a caring for the soul and having a spiritual practice. I say that it's a big part of your own religion. And in my therapeutic work, I rely about 99% on dreams. I really follow the dreams closely, the images and see where, how they move, how they change from week to week, all of that kind of thing. It takes a certain kind of knowledge to be able to to appreciate images at that level. But uh, it's interesting then that <clears throat> the images that we find in dreams, we also find in mythology. Jung was very interested in this, the connection between myth and, dr and dream. But the arts too, the arts are images. So you have a dream, you wake up from it, and you're not sure what it is. You, you know you, what it means. You go to an art museum or gallery and you look at a painting, you might be attracted to it, but it might be very difficult to say what it's about. But it moves you. But it some, moves you. you, you're, you it's, I think you've used the word, it's a, it's a portal in some it's way. It's a portal. That's one of my favorite words for it. It's a portal to something. So you, you, you look at this painting and it, it, if you stay with it, and especially if there's one that really has meaning to you, if you have it, if it's a painting you have, you can put it up on your wall. Why do we put it on the wall but that it's our companion for years, for years? I've written almost all my books with my wife's paintings around me, and these are, and I've never tired of being with them. Well, speaking of your wife's paintings, you tell the story. It was extraordinary that she did an uh, exhibit of her hundreds of l small paintings where she got up every day at and painted the sky in the morning and the evening. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Yes, we were in Ireland. We, we, my whole family went to Ireland for a year, put the kids in school, and we had to go through immigration. And we noticed going through immigration that a lot of people had great trouble trying to get through because they had to prove they could handle their lives financially. So she's a, what, at times, she does what she calls public art, or people call public art. And so she thought she'd like to have a project where she could address that issue of immigration. And she noticed that in Ireland, the clouds go over that country. They just keep flowing by. I mean, they're going so fast and they're so dramatic. She thought, and you know, those clouds don't notice the boundaries. I mean, they don't pay any attention to boundaries from one country to another. They don't have to go through immigration. So, uh, <laughs> so she decided that would be a very good uh, subject. 
So, and she's a she's a person who is very interested in spiritual practice, and she's a member of a Sikh religion. And so, uh, she decided on this sort of a monastic practice. She she would get up at four a.m. every morning, and she would take time out at four p.m. every afternoon to paint the clouds, paint the sky, and she came up with hundreds of those. Yeah, and they were very small. They, they were the size. Actually, this was a while ago. It was the size of the pound note in Ireland. They use euros today, but at the time, they were the pound note. So it was about the size of a $5 bill in America. And she painted, well, a little larger than that, but not much. And she painted with oils. She, and she brought her oils with her wherever. If we went to visit friends, she'd bring the oils with her and at 4 o'clock go and paint. So it was a ritual, and it had meaning. It was an ethical thing to do, an ethical you know, reflection on our problem with immigration and national, nationalism. But it was also, these are beautiful images of the sky and very subtle in their differences from each other. And now she displays them as a whole, that all the paintings go together. So now that art has a lot of meaning. You can explain it, you can talk about it, but you can also just contemplate it. You can just sit in front of it and appreciate it. What kind of reception did the exhibit get? Oh, uh, I thought she was going to be put in jail, actually. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, we had the guard, who are the priest, the uh, guardy, the the police of Ireland. We she she displayed it. She got permission to display it in the uh, immigration office in sort of a, a glass. There was a, sort of a glass doorway that she put all these on, and. Um, uh, some of the people there didn't know she had permission, and they were ready to take her away and told her to close it down, and she told them she had permission. And I saw them, you know, there were two of them, like their noses touching each oh. other. She didn't she back down. She was fierce. She was fierce. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, they backed down. Well, she had, they had to back down. Now, now, there are increments there of, of social awareness and then art and then uh, that all have to do with developing a spirituality or religion of your own. Absolutely. In other words, that was her religious practice. She didn't get that from any theology or church or anything, and the images were central to it. She was making images that would, the images stand alone, but and they're beautiful, but they also make a statement about some of our foolishness, that we overdo this nationalism thing. Right. I'm reminded of the story that another guest on New Dimensions, uh, Terry Tempest Williams, has told. She spent a year visiting the uh, museum in Madrid, the uh, uh, I think El Prado Museum, where Bosch's painting of heaven and hell, the triptych, heaven and hell, and then the Garden of Earthly Delights. Mm-hmm. And she spent a year sitting in front of that painting. Mm-hmm. Even with binoculars, she became known as the woman who would sit. That's great. And That's, it was know. like, it just, it was so, it it was a portal for her. I mean, she ended up writing a whole book about it and ended up having her father come. And, and she actually right. ended up being able to do a couple of strokes on the painting when they, uh, were reviving it, or yeah. uh, it, it just was an incredible story. But this is where you you talk about going to a museum like that as having a darshan. Yes. So what 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 do you mean by that? Well, darshan is an in uh, a practice in India, as I understand it. Uh, it is uh, a practice where you go to a shrine 
uh, or you can go to a guru, to a teacher, a holy person, but you can go to a shrine where there is a statue of a goddess or a god usually or a spirit of some kind. And your, the point is to be there in the presence of this uh, statue, this god, and that spirit, and be seen. By the, in the you know the the Indians when they make these images have a whole ritual just putting the eyes into the into the sculpture into the statue because those eyes are so significant because it's the seeing and being seen that is what darshan is all about so it's like presenting yourself to the holy and saying you know I am seen by the holy you know like I'm I'm somebody I I am a spiritual person because this goddess has looked upon me that kind so of thing. if you're in a museum in front of a painting that has moved you it's like having i'm you're not yeah. only seeing the painting but you're saying you're seen by the painting. yes in a certain way you can present yourself to it in a way in which you allow yourself to be seen by it to be affected by it really affected by i it. think we can all feel those moments when we are haunted by i use the word haunted by, uh, because it keeps recurring by a piece of art, and maybe maybe we had an opportunity to to own it in some way, and we maybe let that slide by, and years later we remember it and wish that we had possession of it in some way. That's a word that, interestingly, Emily Dickinson uses for the same thing. I don't remember her exact words now. It's in one of her letters, but she says that. We should develop the capacity to be haunted. You know that that's a capacity to be able to be haunted, uh, to be so affected and mysteriously taken by an image. Now, in my work with James Hillman, you know, my friend James Hillman, who was a Jungian analyst, died a couple of years ago. Uh, Jim uh, Jim's work was largely about images and the power of images, so he amplified that for me. And uh, he, he wrote a great deal and talked a lot, and I've spent a lot of time with him and so saw him relate to images. He thought it was so important that we, that we allow the images to affect us. That our tendency is to interpret the images in our own terms and say what they mean. And he said it was much more important to have the images tell us what we mean, you know, the other way around, so that the image is doing something to us. It's affecting us because we are in its presence. So the image is very active. It's very active. That's the meaning of darshan, the, as I understand it. The image is active. It's not passive. It's not something we do to. And it's not just the expression of the artist. That's another way we egotize art. We, we make it more ego. It's not that. The artist is, is someone who is able to create an image that has its own life. The, the artist is, well, the, the way that they say it in India, and the way they said it in the European Renaissance, too, was that the artist is someone who has this great skill to create an image that this spirit that he's trying to evoke has no choice but to take up residence in it. Mm. Mm. So, in that way, haunting a ghost-like figure that that rather mysterious. And when you talk about these things, uh, that it, it produces, I think you used the word, an uneasy feeling. Like a religion of our own is not going to be always easy or, or just love and light. It's rarely going to be easy. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I'm afraid. No, it's very rewarding. But what I mean by that is that it's always a challenge to keep it alive and make it your own and not slip into the position where you're giving too much away to somebody else. 
you know, that you, that it, it, there are a lot of people around who would like to convert you to their religion. Whether it's a formal religion or their informal religion, their personal religion, a lot of people would like to convert, like to convert us. It makes them feel more secure to have other people thinking the same way. Um, on this point, one of the things I say in this book is that if I were setting up a missionary program, I would send people out not to convert people, but to help them find their own way. I'm here with Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. He's also the author of the very popular book, Care of the Soul. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. And if you want to know more about his work and his talks, you can go to his website, careofthesoul.net, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Thomas, when we're talking about how all of this is is changing. I mean, I'm reminded that it is changing, that we are ever evolving, and that like making a religion of one's own, you don't kind of put it in a box and then you wrap it all up and you've got it all set. For you, is is it still unfolding? Oh, it's always unfolding, constantly unfolding, but then there are times when you have big leaps, you know, things really change. Yeah, so it's a dynamic thing. It's not static. We tend to think of religion as static. It's like a, a monument or something like that. It's made out of stone. I think it's more alive and changing and growing and uh, at times making really major shifts. Can you recall an example of when your own made one of those big leaps? I've had a lot of big leaps. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I guess... One of the big ones, there were so many, but one of the really big ones for me was when I turned 50, around 50. Uh, I had felt that up to that point, I thought, well, I, I, don't have, I, I don't have children. I probably never will have children, so I won't know what it's like to be a parent. And then suddenly, within a few months, I found myself married and having a, a child and had a daughter. And... So I began, I began this life as a parent. And one of the things that has been important to me in, uh, in my work is to see that certain uh, things we consider secular are really sacred, and parenting is one of those. So I think that we should see the job of parenting as a part of our religious practice and that it's a spiritual calling. That's what Mostly it is. we treat it like as a psychology we treat it psychologically yeah. or sociologically, right. right? No, I think we should see it as a, as a sacramental or sacred 
spiritual thing, so that it's a calling. So you become a parent. It's not just that you are you have a job to do now, but you this is your this is your calling. This is this is like being ordained to something. You have now, and you are now not only bringing into the world a body, you know, take care of this physical life of the person, but this is a soul and spirit. And your soul and spirit is engaged in that process. And it means you are being called now to, to guide this person spiritually and in their soul life as they go through different stages in life. And to me, that has been a major shift in my religion. And, and yet not lay your particular form of spirituality on them, but oh, what, no. give them a, a bed in which to, or grounding in oh, which yes. to grow grow it, or I kind of think of like putting a seed in the ground and watering it. In it would some be way. a huge contradiction to try to, to expect my daughter to be what I am, and she isn't. She's, uh, she, does, she has a whole different spiritual life than I have, totally different, and it's wonderful. Yes, which all now takes us to the subject of eros and sexuality, mm-hmm. which has been, in at least in Western culture, really very separated from the religious life. Can you mm-hmm. say something about that? Sure. Uh, uh, this is also another main theme for me. I wrote a whole book on it, Soul of Sex, and I bring it up in most of my books because I think that... Uh, that sexuality is very close to religion, very close to religion. Not, uh, I, if you look at probably most people's experience, there's been an a antagonism between sexuality and spirituality or religion. And it's true that the formal religions, for some reason, I don't know fully why, uh, for some reason have taken on themselves to make it difficult to be a sexual person because they always want to tell us there's something wrong or we, we go too far this way or we shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. But just think of all the all the problems people have trying to deal with their sexual passions and at the same time be a spiritual person trying to follow their religious ideals. It's very hard. And it's hard because it's difficult because the churches have not come to terms with sexuality. And it shows itself in the uh, uh, sex abuse, and among, not only among Catholic priests, but also other spiritual leaders, and in uh, the difficulty of having, in some areas, having women be spiritual leaders and fully participating in the leadership of the spiritual life. Things like that, there, it's all implicated there, so it's huge, it's very big. Even deeper, psychoanalytically, I would say, from, from my position as a therapist, I think that our sexuality and our sexual practices and our sexual imagery and even our sex dreams, sexual dreams, have to do not just with our, our, our sexuality itself, but with our vitality of being alive. I sometimes say that when people will feel that when they've had a good sexual experience, they think, well, they feel that they're just alive and the world is great. Well, that's a hint that there's more going on in sex than we think. And it has to do with vitality and being alive. So it's alive. beyond procreation. Infinitely beyond. <laughs> if, if you say it's about procreation, you're a materialist because you're, you're putting it only in the realm of the physical. And that, that's, that's, that, that's, not, that's not even close to a religious point of view. So we have to consider the soul and spirit. What does the soul need in its sexuality? That's in my book, The Soul of Sex. What does the soul need in sexuality? That's something very different. It's much more. It's subtle. It has to do with your emotions, the, the uh, journey of your life, uh, 
uh, turning points, um, uh, meaningful events, meaningful relationships, all of it. All of it. You do a very different take on an old uh, old story that many of us have heard about the two monks who are walking down the road and they come to a a river or something. And, and mm-hmm. can you tell that story and then sh- show the two different yeah, takes on it, sure. your take and the, and the one that we've all heard? Yes. That's, that's a story very often told of the two monks. Usually it's told as an older monk and a younger monk, and they're walking down a path, and they come to a stream, and there's a woman there uh, trying to figure out how to get across the stream. And so the um, uh, one monk takes, picks her up and carries her over. And, uh, and uh, then they walk on. And uh, they're walking and they're talking to each other. And the one monk uh, starts wondering about whether it was a good idea to carry this woman across the stream. Was that a thing a monk should do? And the other one says, well, I, uh, I carried her across and then put her down. I let it go. You still, you're still carrying her. And so that, for us, is the lesson of letting things go. And letting we, things we ac- go. We accept that kind of interpretation. Right. However, you have a different interpretation. Well, yeah. See, in one way, that the spiritual interpretation is, the spiritual one is, you should let things go. You should not be attached. Very the, Buddhist for, in its Yeah, thought. very Buddhist that way. The, the, more, the soul-oriented approach to that is that it's a good thing to worry about things sometimes, to think about them to keep reflecting on them and wondering to yourself, was that the right thing to do or not? Uh, I learned this a lot, great deal from Hillman. It's a very good thing, whatever causes reflection and continuing, even painful, disturbing thought about something, that educates your soul. You have to sort out so much. It's like a little alchemical process. So in, in my, from my point of view, the monk who can't put her down is better off. I think that person should become the teacher and not the other one. So that so you're saying that we can we should not be uneasy with ourselves if these things keep cropping up and no. they keep kind of nagging at our no, soul. That's this a is good a, thing. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. So again, we're talking about like a religion of our own is not always an easy road. It's not no. a, a an easy pavement. It's it's got some twists and turns in right, it. Right. So, you know, this uh, to continue that story, uh, you know, assuming like it's an event, that uh, that monk who's worried about having picked up the woman um, may worry about it his whole life, and that's fine. There's something in us, in our mind, in our mental life that wants to have conclusions and get things over with. But when you you look at stories and old literature about the soul, you see that the issues of soul are eternal and timeless, and they never end. And that's fine. They keep circling, coming back. If you look at dreams, it's the same way. You might dream tonight about something that happened years and years ago. It's as though that stuff keeps churning, 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 and it makes us who we are. Well, in our culture... We we want to go to resolution. I mean, right. that's we and we want to do it really fast. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like it's speeding up more and more. We want to be productive and and get get that clear that off the table and strike it off our list of to do. So you're saying that we should kind of hang out a bit with it. Definitely hang out, and we don't decide when it's over. <laughs> you know, it decides when it's over. 
Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Well, um let's let's also talk you also advise us to be mystics. What do you mean by being a mystic? Primarily, I mean, uh, the, and by the way, I, I quote Karen Armstrong, who, who wrote about this, made, I thought, a very nice description. She just says, mysticism, or a mystic, is someone who has a practice that allows them to lose themselves, to, to forget themselves, and, and not in a negative sense, being lost, but in a sense that you no longer have the weight of this personality and ego on you. You can become absorbed. Now, the, what, what I would say is that you can become absorbed in a very positive way. I'd go back to music. In music, you can just get so lost that you let the music take you away. And that taking away ego is a way of transcending, of opening, creating an opening to what religion's about, which is that numinous, mysterious source of it all, you know, that... That kind of thing. So the arts, again, can help like a, make a portal, allow us to exit this, um, uh, this, uh, the weight of being so self-aware and so self-conscious. Although a word used in tradition, used for hundreds of years, was vacation. Take a vacation. So you take a vacation from the burden of your self-consciousness. And you, vacatio, they called it, the vacation of the soul. You kind of leave it behind. And that is, you can see that that would be an opportunity then to make contact, if you want to call that with God or the divine or the mystery, whatever language you like for that. That, that, that creates an opening and allows you then to have a religious experience. I, I think of the word spaciousness. Spaciousness. Yes, it's it's a much greater space in which to live because otherwise we have this very tight space of what we know and what we can understand, and the sense of I is very strong in that place. But when you have a mystical experience, you you lose it. Now I quote, in fact, that the book started at one point. This book started with the story of uh, Edgar Mitchell in the spaceship uh, coming back to Earth from the moon. Because he made so many statements about his experience that were mystical. And he didn't want to call it mystical, I think, because that's not something scientists like to call themselves. But from my point of view, that's what it was. So he is out there in space, and he's looking at the Earth, and he, said he had a, a sense of how it all fit together that he never had before. I'm here with Thomas Moore. He's the author of A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Thomas Moore. He's the author of Care of the Soul and also A Religion of One's Own, A Guide to Creating a Personal Spirituality in a Secular World. Thomas, I know that you use many ways of getting beyond that part of ourselves that is so overused in Western culture, and that's our our intellect and our rational part of our brain. And you use a lot of techniques, uh, and there are many of them, like uh, the I Ching or Tarot or different ways. And can you talk about why these sorts of things are important? Yes, I, whenever I talk about this, I feel I risk being taken as, you know, being sort of flaky about these things, because that's how we, we tend to think of them, given our sophisticated modernist ways of, of, of being. Um, but, you know, when I was uh, doing my, my doctoral studies in religion, my dissertation was about natural magic, which was practiced in uh, Renaissance Europe. And it was a very serious thing done by people who are highly educated and used by governments. And uh, it's a practice. These are practices of natural magic that we have lost largely. Uh, once in a while we use them, but not very often. So, so I've approached this from a very intellectual point of view to begin with. And then I began the practice of some of these things. What they are, they are techniques I would say, it's, I'm trying to rationalize it now, to give it some rational basis. There are techniques that spark your imagination or let you take you to a place in your thinking or your awareness where you're, you're able to, to explore things in a way that you can't if you stay with your mind in its usual state. So uh, let me give you some examples um, as you said, I guess, the, the tarot cards, are, a lot of people like to look at tarot cards and use them for their intuition. Uh, in our family, we have used tarot cards in the I Ching, things like that. To, to, um, it's kind of a chance thing. You roll dice or you coins, use coins or something. So you have chance involved in it. And what it does, it gets you thinking in ways outside the box of your normal intellectual thinking. And uh, you can get better at this. And so it really does enhance your intuition. Now, uh, the best thing I discovered in my practice was something my grandmother did for years, and that was to read tea leaves. And having this love of Ireland that I have, the, a lot of the Irish read tea leaves. It's kind of a practice there. They still have a strong pagan element in Ireland in their, in their daily life. So it's something that's not so, so unusual for me to give it a, give a try. And I have found that I'm pretty good at reading tea leaves. I mean, it really, something that really works for me. It takes me away from my rationalism. If I read tarot cards, I'm still too rational. Mm -hmm. But if I look at the tea leaves, I don't have much choice because all I'm looking at are little bits of tea. But, uh, but what it does, it does spark my intuition. And actually, I'm able to offer some sort of guidance for myself and others, but just by looking at those things. Now, you tell a story of being in Dublin at a board meeting. Yes. So tell us that story. Uh, I'm on the board of a group of therapists in Dublin, and we were having a board meeting one day, and I arrived late, and uh, uh, they were having tea. The people on the board were having their tea, and uh, it's very common in Ireland, and I just mentioned to them right away, I said, well, you know, I've been reading tea leaves lately quite a bit. And immediately they dumped their cups <laughs> out and, you know, put them in front of me and said, please, please. They were, 
you know, vying to see who could get their tea leaves read first. So I not uh, the normal reception you might get at a at a I don't I don't know a, some big corporation no, in the U.S. Probably not. <laughs> I don't think I try it there, but Ireland's a little freer in many ways. Yeah. So. So I, I looked into the cup, and what I saw, and I didn't understand it at all, uh, I saw that uh, I saw an Africa, a woman from Africa. And uh, I told them that. I, saw, I see this woman from Africa. I don't know what that means, what the relevance is at all. And they said, well, just before you arrived, we were discussing whether, whether to hire this woman who's in South Africa. So I said, well, that's good then. We can pursue this. And I said, the best thing to do would be, let me keep looking in the cup, and you ask me a lot of questions, and I'll just answer from what I see. So they asked me all these questions about this woman, and including does she type? <laughs> and I thought that's the most concrete question I've ever had looking in a <laughs> teacup. But I talked about her. Did it say her. that she typed? Uh, yes, <laughs> it did. It said that she wouldn't. She'd be better at other things. <laughs> and uh, and so now that I think you don't have to go too far out on a limb to say that you can see that if that the things that I that I see in the cup, I may not have thought on my own, but I'm bringing them up, and in that whole discussion and the whole mystery around it and the fascination around it brings everyone's imagination to another level. And we're able to discuss this hiring, hiring of that person, I think with more depth than if we just sat around like a bunch of intellectuals trying to figure it all out. And just reading her resume. And exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so what, what is, what are we tapping into when we do something well, like that? I, some people call, would call it inner guidance. You know, that there's something that we have much more intelligence about things than we know. Or if we could be, if we could not have to pin everything down so that we know all the mechanics, how it works, but rather to, to just move gradually toward an understanding of how to live, what to do next, to make a move here, make a move there, not without knowing what we're doing. I mean, this is isn't this close to the Chinese, uh, to Tao Te Ching and Wu Wei? You know, you do without do, doing. Uh, you accomplish right. more by not doing that by kind of thing. Doing. Right. So that's really close to that kind of approach. That's why I think it fits in so snugly with a religion of one's own, because it takes us away from that controlling. I would call it secularist rationalism, where we have to know so much and have facts and have everything proven. In this realm, you don't prove anything you trust more. You trust yourself, and you trust your intuitions, and you move ahead, and you move into life in a different way. And I'm telling you, that is so much, there's so much more joy in that way of life. And I think there's more responsibility and guilt and all that kind of thing with the other way. So it really leads us to live in the mystery we don't get to do that that often no. these days uh, with all of our technology and, and our doingness. We don't. In fact, it's getting worse all the time yes. with our technology. Not only technology, but, you know, the, the scientific world, I don't want to criticize science. It's done wonderful, wonderful things. But um, the one danger in science is that they want, to, they want to be the last arbiter. They want to be the final judge of what's right or wrong, what's true and whether we're right or not about what we think. And I don't want to give that away. I want to be able to move along unscientifically 
and using my intuition as much as possible and living that way. And that's being open to the, yes, to the mystery of life. That's why it's so close to religion. And I think you see in religions, like the Tibetans choosing their Dalai Lama through a dream and through a, a oracle, that kind of thing. That's, that's the same kind of right. thing. Right. We both have had in earlier in our life some time spent with our dear friend Joseph Campbell, a mythologist. Mm-hmm. And um, you tell a story about what he said to you one time as you were sitting down with him. Uh, it wasn't exactly follow your bliss. It was something no. else. Uh, what, what did he <laughs> this say This was to before you? He, he thought of follow your bliss. He used to say early on, follow your weird. And that is spelled W-Y-R-D. And he spells it out that way in, in some of his writing. And what he meant was that the weird is, is fate. The three sisters, there's an old tradition that three sisters spin, they dance and they spin your fate out, your fate, who you are, what your life is going like to be. Like your destiny or something. Your like destiny and, you know, who will come into your life and what events will happen. That's like spun out. That's your fate. And um, so he was saying early on that, that we should follow our weird. We should follow those sisters that are spinning out our fate rather than try to control it all. We should follow and see what is our fate. What is my fate? What are the signs here? You know, what has happened to me? Something happens to you, and then you, you can follow that out and say, well, maybe I should change now. The best example for me was when I was, I always wanted to be a college professor. And one day, my, the chair of my department called me in and said, we're not going to give you tenure. And, and I said, why not? And he said, well, only because we don't think you can teach or write. and uh, that was quite a bit because that's about the gist of it so um, I had at that very moment I could have he said do you want to contest this you want to you know contest I said no I said I hear this as a voice telling me what to do I don't agree with you but I hear I hear this statement from you as a voice telling me I have to go in a different direction that was a big acceptance because you are a fine teacher and a fine writer <laughs> and so you could have stood up to them easily and I think and I could have stood case. up to them and made a case although I understood you know I, I've never been able to write in academic style I think that's what they wanted but so I understood that but what I'm saying is that I took it as a, that's a, an example that I know from my own feeling as an example of taking an event as a matter of fate that this, I, that's a glimpse of the sisters spinning out my fate. He says this, I thought my fate was to be a college professor for the rest of my life until the day I walked into that room, till that second. That's what I thought. He uttered that one sentence, I, and I had this vision right away, I mean, this intuitive kind of vision that said, oh, your fate is different than you thought. And well, I'm not going to fight it. Right. Well, Joe would have improved of your your uh your taking that new turn. Uh, Thomas, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions. It's always a pleasure, Justine. Always. Thank you. I've been speaking with Thomas Moore. He's the author of Care of the Soul and also A Religion of One's Own, a guide to creating a personal spirituality in a secular world. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, careofthesoul.net. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3493. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.